Why don't you turn your Bibles this morning to Romans chapter 5. We um, began a topic last week that we called reigning in life as kings. Or reigning in life, I guess is what we called it. Romans chapter 5 verse 17 is uh, the point that we began. And we want to start there again this morning. Paul is uh, writing some wonderful, wonderful truths to the Romans. And the Holy Ghost saw fit to save the letter for us. Thank God he did. To tell us who we are in Christ, who we used to be in that we were dead in trespasses and sins, but who we've been made because of the sacrifice of Jesus. And he makes one of the most astonishing statements in all of the scripture as far as I'm concerned. But it's truth. The challenge is whether or not we will believe it. He said, beginning in uh, verse 17, he said, For if by one man's offense, and the one man he's talking about is Adam, if by one man or Adam's offense, death reigned by one. Now, the death he's talking about is not physical death. Because you remember that after Adam sinned, well, in the Garden of Eden, God uh, commanded him uh, not to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for in the day that thou eat thereof thou shalt surely die. Well, he didn't die spirit, uh, he didn't die physically that day. He didn't die for another 930 years until after, uh, it was 930 years after he first ate of the tree and disobeyed God that he died. So physical death is not what he's talking about. But what happened that day was he died spiritually. He became separated and estranged from God. So the death he's talking about is spiritual death. So it says, for if by one man, Adam's offense, death reigned by one. I don't know about you, but I wasn't in the Garden of Eden. Well, I do know about you. You weren't there either. But spiritual death reigns over us. Apart from Jesus, it reigns over the whole earth. Because Adam's sin, Adam's offense, counted for the whole world. Counted for all of mankind. As the head, the federal head of mankind, all of mankind sinned in him. That's an interesting concept for you and I to understand. We sinned in Adam. We weren't there. We didn't do anything. We weren't even born. But we sinned in Adam. Because Adam represented mankind. And I believe this is the point that Paul's trying to make. I believe this is one of the, the, the truths that he's trying to bring out. You weren't there. Yet spiritual death rules and reigns over you just as much as it ruled and reigned over him. His action counted for you. And it caused your spiritual nature to be changed from God's original plan. God made Adam in his own image. Genesis 1.26 says, let us make man in our own image and let them have dominion over all the works of our hands. God, was, God made Adam and Eve in the image of himself. He made them with his character. He made them in his likeness. He made them in his nature. Now, we think of in his image as being looked like, to, to look like God, and there may be some truth in that. But in his nature really means his spiritual nature. I don't think God cares so much about how things look as he does what's on the inside. The Bible says man looks on the outside, but God looks on the heart. Amen? When I look at some of the things that God made, I, I just have to conclude God's not too concerned about how things look. I'm not talking about you. There's no reason for you to feel funny. So being made in the image and the likeness of God has more to do with made in his spiritual image than anything else. In his spiritual likeness, his nature was man's nature. He breathed into man the breath of life. His spirit caused this flesh body, this thing that God formed from the dirt, to come alive. That's how he was in God's likeness. That's how he was in God's nature. Well, when Adam sinned, it counted for you because he was the first of this spirit being to be made. For if by one man's offense, death reigned by one, much more. Now, folks, we know that's absolute. We know spiritual death is ruling and reigning on the earth. We know that's why man is given to evil tendencies. That's why left alone, without boundaries, without morality, without uh, uh, anything uh, concerning a law or, or instruction or spiritual instruction or whatever, man will just go worse and worse and worse. Man will become basically an animal himself. 
you look at the nations that have never found Christianity, you'll find all kinds of just uh, terrible stuff, things uh, even up to the point of cannibalism. Well, why? Because without the presence of God, being separated from God, man becomes an animal himself. He reverts to the lowest possible form or lowest possible aspect of spiritual nature. So we know that's true. You look at the nations of the world that have uh, have created, um, uh, d- have developed things and invented things that have blessed mankind. Those have been Christian nations. Those have been nations primarily that received the gospel or the generation following them. Because the light of the gospel brings in creativity. When somebody changes from death to life, when somebody goes from spiritual death to being spiritually alive through making Jesus the Lord of their lives, that brings creativity, it brings life, it brings inventiveness into them and into society. Man's got this idea that the, that the further and further we go, the smarter and smarter we get, and the more and more we get developed. But you go back to some of the ancient archaeological finds, you'll find out that man was doing things back in the Babylonian days even, that were much greater than what we can do now. They were doing forms of brain surgery that we haven't even touched on. How is that possible? Because they were less removed from spiritual life, the origin of spiritual life which came in Adam and Eve. Man's not getting better and better or smarter and smarter. He's getting worse and worse. He's getting more and more depraved. Now, we like to think that because we're civilized, we're all kinds of things that we're not. At least some people do in society. That's not the way it works. Further and further you get away from God, the worse and worse things get. That's true in your personal life. That's true in society. true where the world is concerned. For if by one man's offense, death reigned by one. Well, that was absolutely true. Much more. (laughs) I love this. Much more. Now, I made, I think I made mention of this before, but if I didn't, it bears, if I did, it bears repetition. If I didn't, let me say it now. Um, this phrase, much more, is used several times in the Greek. Paul is primarily the one that uses it. And, uh, and it, it's, it doesn't really convey the true meaning in the English because we just say, well, if something's good, then how much better is this? And that's not what it means. In the Greek, it means, that these things are too far removed, so far removed from one another that they shouldn't even be compared. It's like saying that a, a guppy is alive and a man is alive. Well, those are two different forms of life. If a guppy is alive, much more man is alive. They shouldn't even be compared. You can't even compare those two forms of life. Well, that's what he's saying here. He's saying if it was absolutely true that by Adam's sin, death reigned, spiritual death reigned upon all mankind, even those who did not sin personally, but though every person, every human being who was represented in Adam sinned in him too, much more without comparison, much more, they which receive the abundance of grace and of the gift of righteousness shall reign in life by one Jesus Christ. Now, notice he says there's the comparison that really shouldn't even be made, but brings the point out, is it's absolutely true that spiritual death reigned because of Adam's sin. But it's even more true, so much more that it's not even in the same category, that those that receive the abundance of grace and the gift of righteousness shall reign in life. Now, what does he mean, reign in life? Well, what did we lose in spiritual death? You remember there was a curse that came upon mankind. There was a curse that came upon the earth. We know that the Bible tells us that man was redeemed from the curse of the law. That curse of the law is three things, spiritual death, sickness, and poverty. But we also know there was a curse that came upon the earth. There was a curse that came upon the earth in that God said that to, to Adam, from now on, the earth is going to bring forth thorns and thistles. Well, I wonder what it brought forth before that. He said, you're going to have to work the, the ground with your hands. I wonder how he did it before then. And he said, only thorn, he said, thorns and thistles will be the things that the earth will bring forth. Well, apparently that's a new concept. Apparently there's no such thing as thorns and thistles prior to the fall. 
Folks, I don't know this to be true of a certainty, but I'm inclined to believe that Adam farmed by words rather than by hand. That's how God made everything. What's God going to say? Now, Adam, I made all this stuff by speaking it into existence, but you're going to have to work it. I guess that's possible. But it's not exactly likely. Where would be the point where Adam said, well, why didn't you do it that way? You can see the point, I believe. And as far as I'm concerned, it doesn't matter if I'm right or wrong. It just shows the difference in the earth from before the fall and after the fall. Certainly there was a difference. There was a curse that came upon the earth. He told Adam, by the sweat of your brow, the earth will bring forth and produce for you from this point forward. Must not have been the sweat of his brow that produced before. These are all characteristics. These are all byproducts of spiritual death. These are all byproducts of being separated from God. Folks, you know, it's so easy on this side to look at the mistakes that other people are making on the other side. People that see their lives being destroyed, it's so easy to see why they're being destroyed. Yet they're in confusion. They're thinking, I don't know why all this stuff is happening to me. Maybe God's against me. No, God's not against you. You're separated from him. Which indicates the closer in fellowship you get with God, the more things will work the way they're intended to work. Which means spiritual life, reigning in life, has something to do with fellowship with God. Amen. Much more that they which receive the abundance of grace and the gift of righteousness shall reign in life. In other words, shall overcome every characteristic of spiritual death. Shall counteract, shall overcome, shall be victorious over every characteristic of spiritual death. It doesn't say spiritual death is removed from the earth. Wouldn't that be nice? Wouldn't it be nice if we could say, I'm a Christian, so spiritual death is gone from the earth. That'd be great. That's not the way it works. But it does say you can reign over the curse of the earth and the curse of the law. They which receive the abundance of grace and the gift of righteousness shall reign in life. Now, grace is a word. We've talked about this so many times. Grace is a word that probably, in my opinion, is the hardest word to define in all of Scripture. And I think one of the reasons for that is everybody keeps coming up with different definitions. The most widely known definition is unmerited favor. I don't like that definition because when I hear that, the first thing I hear is unmerited. I can't get past the unmerited to the favor part. So I define grace this way. I'm adding to the problem. I'm creating my own definition. But mine's right, so everybody else, if I just stick with it long enough, everybody else will catch on. I believe grace in its ultimate form comes down to the finished work of Jesus. Because everything God has done in his favor, forget deserving or not, forget whether you merit it or not. Everything that God has done for us, he's done in Jesus. And how he did those great and wonderful things in Jesus is through Jesus' sacrifice, which means it's a finished work. So let's use that definition for this purpose. Those that receive the finished work of Christ. But notice he says it's abundant. That tells us, and I think that's instructive because it tells us it's not just forgiveness of sins, which so many people think the finished work of Jesus is all about. It's not just the forgiveness of sins. Because if it's just the forgiveness of sins, what about the curse that's on the earth? What about overcoming the other characteristics of spiritual death? Reigning in life would not just could not just be just having to having been forgiven of sins, could it? I mean, if Jesus, if uh, Paul had been inspired by the Holy Ghost to say much more, they which receive the abundance of grace and the gift of righteousness shall be forgiven of their sins. Okay, well, we could accept that then as the common thought. But he didn't. He said reign in life. That means, that has to mean to overcome all the characteristics of spiritual death. Sickness, poverty, lack in every manner, separation from God, certainly, the whole thing. 
They which receive the finished work, the abundant finished work of Jesus. And the gift of righteousness shall reign in life by one Christ Jesus. Now, folks, let me talk to you about this for a minute. Oh, and let me make this statement before I go any further. That word receive means to take hold of or to act on. Certainly, without dispute, you can take hold of part of the finished work of Jesus without taking hold of the rest of it. We see a lot of Christians doing that nowadays. We see a lot of Christians taking hold of the finished work of Jesus where forgiveness of sins is concerned, but then they leave the characteristics, the the victory over the characteristics of spiritual death that we've talked about previously. They leave all those things out. They leave the healing that was a part of the finished work of Jesus out and don't take hold of that. They don't walk in that. They leave out Jesus' price that he paid for our our, uh, poverty, well-being in every area. Isaiah 53, 5 says it this way, the chastisement of our peace was upon him. That word peace is translated well, it's translated a number of things. It means well-being in every area. It's the Hebrew word shalom, but it's translated prosperity in many places. So he's saying the punishment of our prosperity was upon him. In other words, he took lack, the characteristic of spiritual death that causes us to be in lack in any area. Jesus took that upon himself just as much as he took upon our sins. So it says, they that which receive, take hold of, act on the finished work of Jesus. And the the gift of righteousness shall reign in life as one. Let me ask you a question, folks. Uh, We we talked about this, uh, I think last week we talked about from uh, Ephesians chapter 1, that God predestined you to be holy and without blame before him. In other words, God's original plan before he ever thought about making the earth, before he ever created the universe, his original plan was to have children who would be holy and without blame. Now, if Jesus didn't accomplish that, then he didn't get the job done. If Jesus did not accomplish making you holy and without blame before God, then there's no way Jesus could be sitting down at his right hand because he wouldn't be finished. He had to have accomplished God's pre-planned idea, his pre-planned purpose, his pre-planned goal. And the Bible's real clear on that. Maybe we ought to look over there, back to Ephesians chapter 1. Maybe we ought to look over there to remind you. The Bible says God's original purpose, before he ever made man, before the foundations of the world, Wait a minute, I've got the wrong thing. I've got the wrong uh, wrong scripture. Where is it? It's Romans 8, predestined, Ephesians. Uh, is it Ephesians 1? Yeah, there it is. Of course it is. Sorry. I've got so many marks in my Bible, I'm going to have to start highlighting in white. <laughs> Let's start in verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with all spiritual blessings in heavenly places in Christ. Past tense. He has blessed you with all spiritual blessings in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. In other words, by one man's work, Jesus, you have been blessed with all spiritual blessings in Christ Jesus. That means you have already received everything that you will ever need in potential. Maybe not yet in reality, but in potential, you have everything you need to overcome spiritual death and the characteristics of spiritual death. Verse 2, verse 4, according as he has chosen us in him before the foundation of the world. Now, chosen us in him doesn't mean he chose certain ones and left other ones out. It means he chose man. He chose man in him. Here's what God, this was God's original plan, his original purpose. According as he has chosen us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before him in love, having predestinated us. Predestined means to be, to have preplanned or preordained. He predestined you unto the adoption of children by Jesus Christ to himself. Now, stop and think about what that means. That means he did not expect that everybody was going to live like Adam. He knew before he ever made man that Adam would be in the earth, that Adam would fall, that Jesus would redeem us, and that we would be adopted in Christ. He did not say adopted in in Adam. So God knew the plan. He knew what was going to happen. He knew from the beginning and still put Adam in the middle of the Garden of Eden. 
to mess up. He didn't make him mess up. He didn't cause him to mess up. That was Adam's choice. He did that on his own. But God knew ahead of time what was going to happen. So he had predestined us to be adopted unto children in Christ Jesus. We look at this and think, oh, man, Adam messed up the plan. Well, he messed up. But God knew ahead of time what he was going to do. It's kind of like you giving your kids something and knowing what they're going to do with it. Even if it's something that's destructive. You ever given your kids a baseball bat and just known the flower vase is toast? Well, what happens? They start swinging the bat in the house, hit the flower vase, and it goes, and you think, I knew that was going to happen. Well, did you make them do it? No. You just knew ahead of time it was going to happen. Right? We have experiences like that a lot of times with our kids. God predestined us to be adopted into children, or the adoption of children was God's predestined plan, by Jesus Christ to himself according to the pleasure of his goodwill. Notice again in verse 4 what God originally planned before the foundation of the world was that you would be holy and without blame before him in love. Folks, that means if you've made Jesus the Lord of your life, it's impossible for you to not be holy and without blame before God. Yeah, but, but I don't feel that way. Well, I don't always feel that way either. But it doesn't change the truth. I don't always feel married. But I am. Every day. <laughs> like it or not. Feelings have nothing to do with it. I entered into a legal agreement. I entered into a contract. With another human being and the, and the state certified, stamped it and said, yep, that's it. You're married. Well, sometimes feelings change. Sometimes I have different feelings about that marriage than other times. I'm sure that's not the case with you, but sometimes that's the way it works with me. My kids are my kids, no matter what. Sometimes I want to sell them off. Sometimes my kids do things that displease me. Sometimes I think, what in the world am I doing? I'm co- it's costing me a fortune and I'm getting nothing out of this. <laughs> but I'm in a relationship with them, right? Through Jesus, you're in a relationship with your Heavenly Father. As a result of that, no matter what my kids do, they're my kids no matter what. I love them no matter what. I may not always be happy with what they're doing. But I love them no matter what. And what they did doesn't change the fact that I love them. It's not going to affect that. It's not going to diminish that love. I love them because they're my kids. Because I'm in a relationship with them, that's why I love them. Now, what if my kids spent the rest of their lives moping around saying, well, Dad, I'm just so sorry for all the things that I've done. I'd like my kids to do that every now and then. (laughs) But I don't want them to spend their lives that way. Notice I'm talking over here, honey. I'm not coming over there where you are. I'm sticking on this side. I'm talking about your brother anyway, you know. <laughs> what if they were, were crippled in life thinking, but I've done such terrible things? Well, I don't want that. And I'm going to be telling them all the time, look, I love you. Don't worry about it. I love you. Pick yourself up. Let's go on. You said you're sorry. We forgive you for that. Let's move forward. Right? Well, then why do Christians spend their lives, their Christian lives crippled because they feel like they're unworthy? We understand it with our kids. Why don't we understand it spiritually? God predestined you to be holy and without blame before him in love. Why are you holy and without blame? Because God loves you. He loves you more than you could ever love your kids. He loves you more than any human parent could ever love their kids. And we know of situations, whether we've experienced it or not, we know of situations where parents have forgiven unconscionable things because they love their kids. And God loves us more than any human parent could ever love their kids. He predestined you to be holy and without blame before him in love. So no matter how you feel, you are holy and without blame before him in love. Let me ask you a question. God makes Adam, puts him in the Garden of Eden. Adam and Eve together. Gives Adam a wife. Knew he needed help, so he gave him a wife. 
puts him in the Garden of Eden. Adam knows nothing except the things of God. How did Adam develop his faith? Were those walks with God in the cool of the day, in the afternoon? Were those teaching sessions or were those classroom sessions? Was God teaching Adam so that Adam could build his faith? Was God showing Adam, here's how you can trust me? Trusting God may certainly have been the byproduct of that. But folks, Adam didn't have to put any effort into building his faith at all. He knew nothing else. What about Jesus? Jesus was born of a virgin. Holy Spirit overshadowed Mary. Jesus was conceived and born into the earth. At age 12, we see him in the temple asking the the Pharisees, uh, the religious leaders, the high priests and the group in the temple. We see him asking them questions that they can't answer and answering them their questions in such a way that they were amazed. He didn't have their training. He didn't have their education. How did he learn to know about God? Did Jesus ever have a problem believing God? How did he develop his faith? Spiritual death was already in the world. He knew nothing else. Folks, here's the point that I want to try to get across to you. When you start taking hold of the finished work of Jesus, the abundant finished work of Jesus, and the gift of righteousness, the fact that you have been made righteous in Christ Jesus, you start taking hold of that, and it changes everything about how you grow in him. It changes everything about how you approach the things of God. Because once you take hold of those things, you don't know anything else. You may have other experiences. There may be other experiences in your past and you may be, you may see characteristics or results of spiritual death having come into the world because of Adam's sin. You may even see the results of spiritual death because of mistakes you've made in your own past. But it's past. So when you start taking your place in Christ, when you accept your place in Christ, what that really means, or at least what it's really supposed to mean, is that you don't know anything else. How hard is it to believe God when you don't know anything else? It's the easiest thing in the world. We've all seen people, whether in business or sometimes in ministry, where sons take their, try to, to take their parents' place their father's place in business or try to become the, uh, you start working in the company to, to become the, the CEO or take the company over or, or something like that, the ministry or whatever. And so often it's, it's painful to watch because instead of accepting who they are and being themselves and working toward whatever goal there is to take over the, the, the group or the ministry or whatever, they're trying to force something to happen. They try to impose their position on other people. I see folks doing that spiritually. You know, it's a characteristic of teenagers. I'm learning a lot about teenagers. It's a characteristic, it seems to be, of teenagers. And I remember this of myself. And I I have nothing to complain about or or criticize my kids about because everything, I see everything they're doing is something that I did for myself. There's such a, a, a searching process in your teenage years. And I know I did this and I see my kids doing this. They're searching for control in their own lives because they know the goal is for them to control their lives, but they've lived all their lives being under their parents' controls, and now they're in this transition place. What do I control? What's really mine? What can I do? What And so forth. Well, I see people doing that spiritually. Uh, let's look at Jesus. Jesus is in the boat. He says to the disciples, let's go to the other side. They get halfway across and a great storm of wind arises. The Bible says that the, that the, the boat, the water starts coming into the boat and finally Peter wakes him up and, uh, and says, Jesus, don't you care that we're perishing? Uh, you know, it, it, you want to wake somebody up if you're going to die. It's important that they're awake for that, I guess. So Jesus gets up and he stands in the bow of the ship. 
And he says, now, when I'm the son of God, I have authority here on the earth. Now, now you listen to me. You, you're going to have to do what I tell you to do. I want you to stop this right now. Come on now, stop. Is that anything close to the story? No. He stood in the bow of the ship and he said, peace, be still. He didn't try to prove who he was. He didn't start declaring all kinds of things. I'm the child of God. I've been given authority. I'm anointed of the Holy Ghost. I was born of a virgin. Well, everybody knows that stops the wind, you know. But yet I see people doing the same teenage type stuff spiritually. They're trying to fight something in the flesh to get spiritual results. I see them doing this with sickness. Sickness, I rebuke you. That'll get it. If you scrunch your face up just right, sickness goes away. I see people doing this, trying to take authority over the devil. Satan, I cast you into hell. I command you to go back to hell where you came from. Folks, the devil didn't come from hell. And he doesn't go back and forth. And if you could send him to hell, we'd be done with this once and for all. There'd be no problem. And it all seems to be some kind of attempt to make some physical show to get a spiritual result. And you can't do that. It never works. It never works. I see people doing the same thing in, in natural sense, in a natural sense where business is concerned. You ever had a bully for a boss? That's a real blessing, isn't it? Because here's somebody that has a position of authority and instead of just using their authority for the good of and the welfare of the, the company or to uh, meet the company's goals or whatever it is, and to benefit everybody else in the process, they try to force things to happen. And it never works well. It never works well. Now, there are times when bosses have to look somebody in the eye and say, you do remember who signs your check, don't you? I mean, there are times where you have to exercise authority, but you don't have to be mean about it. You don't have to, the boss, the guy that knows he's really the boss, He's the least likely person or the least, uh, it's the person who is, it's least necessary for him to be the bully because he really is in charge. I've found that most bullies are insecure about whatever position they have or are trying to have. And that's where the bullying comes from. And I see a lot of people trying to be spiritual bullies. Yeah, but Pastor Mike, we're just mean and mad at the devil. Well, how's that going to help anybody? You know, it would seem like if that was the way to work this thing out, if that was the, if that's what really brought re- results, it would seem like in uh, in Mark chapter four or Matthew chapter four, when the devil came and tempted Jesus, and Jesus is talking to him face to face, Jesus would have just punched him out, and that would have been the end of the story. <laughs> but Jesus answered him very simply with the word. Why? Because he knew who he was. He said, get thee behind me, Satan. In other words, you don't have any place here. All I know is the word, and I'm going to stick with that. All I know are the things of God, and I'm going to stick with that. I'm not going to lose my place because I know who I am. The Bible talks about we which have believed do enter into rest. There's a place of accepting who we are in Christ that carries a lot more weight than some kind of physical energy expressed to try to deal with the devil or the results of spiritual death. Jesus walked through the crowd that tried to kill him. What's he doing? Is he doing kung fu moves? Circling around to make sure nobody gets him? No. Jesus just said, I've done many good things among you. Which one are you stoning me for? Or which one do you want to kill me for? 
They said, none of those, but because you make yourself to be the son of God. Well, that's no big deal. God called you gods in the Old Testament. If he called you gods just because you were given the word that was delivered by angels, shouldn't it be much more true for those that he sanctified? Like me? He didn't create a fight. He knew who he was. He just walked through the middle of them. What did they do? Watched him go. They got their rocks. He watched him go. Folks, there's a place of authority that doesn't strive. I think we are so conscious and accustomed to physical things producing physical results that it takes them getting used to spiritual things creating physical results. Do you understand what I mean? The only time Jesus ever seemed to raise his voice was when the devil started speaking things that they shouldn't. And he just said, shut up and come out. Yet the church world has turned exorcism into this really weird stuff that movies are made out of. Why? It's been a long time since we looked at the scripture, but I think I left you in Ephesians chapter 1. Notice it says in Ephesians 1 verse 20, it says, which he wrought in Christ, talking about the power of God, which he wrought in Christ when he raised him from the dead and set him at his own right hand in the heavenly places, far above all principality and power and might and dominion and every name that is named, not only in this world, but also in that which is to come. Now, folks, that is the place that Jesus has. Far above all principality and power and might and dominion and every name that is named. Not only in this world, but in that which is to come. But in this world, it does cover everything in this world, right? And has put all things under his feet and gave him to be the head over all things to the church. Now, where are the feet? Holy Spirit said through Paul. Christ is the head, you're the body. Where are the feet? Are the feet in the head? No, the feet are in the body. That means if he put all things under his feet and you're the body of Christ and he's the head over all things to the church, which is his body, that means all things are under your feet. Verse 23, uh, which is his body. The fullness of him that filleth all in all. As I said, the feet are in the body, not in the head. Chapter 2, and you hath he quickened. What does it mean? Well, it really goes back to chapter 1, verse 20. It says, which he wrought in Christ when he raised from the dead, and you. The same power that was wrought in Christ when he raised him from the dead was wrought in you when you made Jesus the Lord of your life, who were dead in trespasses and sins. Verse 6 And has raised us up together and made us sit together in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So, folks, what we seem to fail to realize is that we have the same place as Jesus. Is Jesus struggling against the devil? Jesus having any problem with the devil whatsoever? Is sickness a problem for Jesus? Why? Because it's been put under his feet. Is poverty a problem for Jesus? Now think about this. Jesus is in heaven. He's trying to accomplish things on the earth. He said he'd build the church here on the earth. And it takes money to build the church here on the earth. I'm not talking about just church buildings. I'm talking about to reach the lost. I'm talking about all kinds of things. So it takes money to reach people here on the earth. Yet Jesus is in heaven where there is no money. At least not our money. There's silver and gold and every precious thing, but not our money. So he doesn't have money in heaven that he can kind of send down to us. The money's here. So how is he going to get the money that the church needs so that he can finish the work of building the church? 
Seems like he's pretty far removed from the situation, doesn't it? But does he have a problem with money? No. You know why? Because the lack of money or the lack of resources in any area is under his feet. So all it takes is for somebody in the body that he's the head of to take hold of the finished work of Jesus to exercise faith to receive healing so that sickness is no longer a problem and to exercise faith in the punishment that Jesus paid for lack and poverty so that's no longer a problem. Now, is Jesus agonizing over whether or not somebody's going to do it? Can you imagine Jesus sitting at the right hand of God, wringing his hands every day, saying, boy, I hope, that, I hope somebody wakes up today. I just hope somebody does something good. No. Why do we wake up wringing our hands? We have the same place he has. The difference is he's there to administrate. We're here in the field. He's at the home office. We're in the field. That's the only difference. We've been given his authority to use in the field. We've been given his place in the field. We have the same place with God, holy and without blame, as Jesus does himself. Now, here's how we look at things. We see somebody that does some miracle. We see somebody that has some working of miracles take place in their ministry. And we think, oh, wow. They must really be something with God. There's no way they've ever done the stuff that I've done. It just couldn't be. There's no way God could use somebody to do that kind of miracle work if they'd done the stuff I've done. Our first thought always is that there's some manner of holiness about them that we don't have. And we attribute that to the power. And folks, that's not new. That's the same thing that Paul said, or that, uh, what's his name, Peter, said in Acts chapter 3, after they raised the, the beautiful, at the beautiful gate where they raised the crippled man up. Paul said, why are you looking on us? Everybody was amazed. And, said, and Paul, uh, Peter, excuse me, Peter said, why look ye on us? as if by our own power or our own holiness we had made this man to walk. He said, it's not special power on our part. It's not some special holiness on our part. Yet those are the things that we naturally associate with any miracle work. Somebody's got some special power or they've got some special place with God. Automatically. And nobody has special power and nobody has special place with God. Now, God may anoint somebody with a special ministry that manifests certain areas of power, but that what I'm talking about and what I'm trying to get across is nobody has one thing that God can't give to somebody else. It's just all depending on his plan for their life, his purpose, and, and so forth, the call that he has upon them. Do you understand what I mean by that? That doesn't mean everybody's going to have the same power as far as ministry is concerned, but everybody does have the same power in the name of Jesus. No two people have a different power in the name of Jesus to use in their own life, in their own individual lives, in their own prayer lives. Yet somebody may have a special anointing to use the power in the name of Jesus in a ministry purpose. But that just has to do with the difference in calls and plans that God has for our lives. But we always associate some special power, some special holiness. It's our first thought, isn't it? It's the first thing we associate. And we think, wow, they're special. They're special. We see men like John G. Lake and read stories of things that happened with him. A man that found his authority, a man that, that understood who he was in Christ. Who set people free from sickness and disease and did just tremendous miracles in line with the purpose that God had for his life, which was bring the gospel to Africa, first of all, and then the healing rooms that he had in Spokane, Washington, after he came back. And we think, gee, this guy was something unreal. Well, John G. Lake starts writing sermons, preaching sermons about God men, 
He didn't say that he was a God man. He said that God, that Jesus, the work of Jesus made God men. In other words, what he stumbled onto, which shouldn't be rare, was that everybody has the same place of authority as Jesus because we've been quickened with Jesus, made alive with Jesus equally, and we've been raised equally with Jesus to have authority over sickness and disease and poverty and so forth. Yet we see people doing things like that, people like Smith Willsworth, people like John G. Lake and others. We see people doing things like that and we think, whoa, wow, they must be right next to Jesus. I used to think that about Brother Hagin. I used to think the order of God was God, Jesus, and the Holy Ghost all on the, on, you know, if you've got an organization, organizational chart, you get God, Jesus, the Holy Ghost, and right under that is Brother Hagin. And if God's going to do anything in the earth, he's going to have to come through Brother Hagin. And nothing's going to happen in the earth unless he tells Brother Hagin first. Well, I grew out of that. I saw the difference in Brother Hagin as a man in the office that he stood in. I don't think some people ever did see that. But we see people doing exploits for God and we think, man, there must be something special about them. Why do we think that? You're seated in heavenly places with Christ Jesus just as much as they are. If I had planned this out better, I would have gotten one of those pictures of Jesus. You know the picture where he stands sideways, where he's sitting sideways? Got the long wavy hair. He's got his eyes lifted up a little bit like he's looking in heaven. There's a little bit of light coming over there. He's just got this sweet look. I hate that picture. I would not have followed that guy around. He does not look like that. I've seen him. He does not look like that. But even at that, we look at the Gospels and we think, that's the Jesus that we're supposed to emulate. Well, he showed us some great things. He's a great example. But folks, First John chapter 4 and verse 17 says, as he is in the, the, as he is, so are we in this world. It does not say as he was. It says as he is. As he is, so are we in this world. Well, okay. How is he? Well, he's love. And that's the point that John was bringing out in 1 John 4, 17. But he's righteous. He's holy. He's pure. Everything that you can say about Jesus is summed up in righteous and love. Everything. Everything is, is goodness. Everything is about Jesus. Everything about the, the character and the nature of God is righteousness. It's purity. It's love. It's goodness. You pick your word. It's all the same thing. It is the nature of God. Now, that nature is what you've been made. Look with me to Second Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 21. Second Corinthians chapter five and verse 21 tells us that who Jesus was made and who we are made. For he, speaking of God, has made him Jesus to be sin for us who knew no sin. Now, folks, please notice that it says he made him to be sin. It doesn't say he laid sin upon him. It was a great revelation to me because I, I came up in a denominational upbringing. And I, I don't know whether they told me this or if I just developed the idea myself. I really don't know. I'm not going to blame anybody else for it. But I had the idea that God kind of put sin upon Jesus like you'd lay a coat or a cloak upon somebody. He just kind of draped something over him and, and called that sin. But that's not what the Bible says. The Bible does not say he laid sin upon him. It says he made him sin. Now, I don't know how this works for you, but for me, the thing that has and is, has made and is making the most difference for me to understand my place in Christ is to understand that Jesus died and went to hell. Now, he couldn't have died and gone to hell, meaning the place of the dead, the mean, meaning the place of the spiritually dead. He couldn't have done that unless he was dead. Righteous people can't go into hell. 
Jesus, as a righteous man, could not have gone into hell. In other words, Jesus couldn't have taken sin like a coach and had God laid that on him and still righteous on the inside, the real him being righteous, walked into hell and said, okay, I'm here to stay for three days and after that I'm going to leave. Can't do it. It's not the way it works. Wouldn't have been legal. God would have been cheating. In order for Jesus to go to hell, in order for Jesus to pay the price of sin, he had to go where you would have gone without him. And that's hell. That's the place of the spiritually dead. Now, the Bible proves this, not to everybody's satisfaction, but certainly to mine. It says he was the firstborn from the dead. Colossians 1.18 says he was the firstborn from the dead. That's not physical death. There were other people that were raised physically from death before Jesus. Lazarus was a good example in Jesus' ministry. So the firstborn from the dead has got to mean something other than physical death. It's spiritual death. He was the firstborn from spiritually dead. You can't be born from the spiritually dead unless you were first spiritually dead. The Bible says in First uh, Timothy chapter 3 and verse 16, it says that Jesus was justified in spirit. You can't be justified in spirit unless you are unrighteous in spirit. And that's the definition of spiritual death. First Peter chapter 3 and verse 18 says that Jesus was quickened in spirit. You can't be quickened or made alive in spirit unless you were first dead in spirit. There's no way around it if you're going to believe what the Bible says. Now, I know a lot of people, that's too far for them to go. Okay, uh, have it your way. But that's what the Bible says. And Paul confirms it here. He says, God made Jesus to be sin for us. If he's sin, that means he's spiritually dead. Because sin was the entrance to spiritual death. He made him to be sin. Jesus became spiritual death. I believe this was, took place progressively on the cross. I believe it started in the Garden of Gethsemane. But it progressively went forward through his, uh, his passion, through the, the crucifixion and so forth. The Bible says by the end of the crucifixion, he was so twisted and gnarled up that they didn't even look like a human. Well, what causes that? you got two other guys, one on each side that are thieves. They still look the same. They've been lay, hanging on the cross the same time Jesus has. Nobody looked at them and said, well, they don't look human. They looked at them and said, they look like they're dying. What made the difference? Jesus was made sin. For he, God, made Jesus to be sin for us who knew no sin. It wasn't his own sin, it was our sins. That we might be made, same word made, the righteousness of God in him. Now here's the deal. If Jesus just had sin placed upon him like a cloak or a coat, but he wasn't really sin, then that means righteousness is just laid on you like a coat, but you're not really righteous. It can't be any other way. In the same way that Jesus was made sin, that's the way that you're made righteous. So either righteousness is real, and Jesus had to die spiritually for us to get it, or Jesus just kind of played it, sin, took it, carried it away, but he stayed the same, and then gives us this cloak of righteousness, but we really stay the same spiritually dead people that we were. Now, you decide for yourself which way it is. I'm through trying to talk people into what's true. I've had this discussion with, with preachers from one end of the country to the other. I've had people cuss at me, preachers, cuss at me and say, Mike, that can't be true. Okay, have it your way. But that's what the Bible says. Now, this, for me, is the real issue because you can't accept your place in Christ unless you know what your place is. And if we're just going to play at it, we're really unrighteous but look righteous by some sleight-of-hand thing that God did to put, on, put a cloak on us. 
then there's no way you'll ever walk in the place of doing the works of Jesus because Jesus did his works because he was righteous and anointed of the Holy Ghost. He was the real deal. Well, wouldn't he know that we couldn't be the real deal? Or if we weren't going to be the real deal, how would we be able to do his works? Why would he tell us to do his works? Unless we were going to be the real deal too. And when I say real deal, I mean the real deal when it comes to righteousness. Do you see the point I'm making? Now we look at Jesus like the way he was. We look at Jesus in the four gospels and we say that is the son of God and that's who we're supposed to be. Folks, that's not who he is. That's who he was. And if that's as far as you get, you've done well. Do you want to see who he is? Turn with me over to Revelation chapter 1. I'm going to start reading in verse 9 to capture the, the context of this. I, John, who also am your brother and companion in tribulation and in the kingdom and patience of Jesus Christ was in the isle that is called Patmos. We know he was exiled there because they couldn't kill him. They tried to boil him in oil and he wouldn't die. Well, what do you do when you're trying to kill a Christian? You're a government leader and you're trying to kill a Christian and the Christian won't die. Will you send them to an island? You exile them. You got to get rid of them some way. He said, I was in the isle that is called Patmos for the word of God and for the testimony of Jesus Christ. That's why I was exiled. I was in the spirit on the Lord's day. That's a good place to be at the right time. I was in the spirit on the Lord's day. Now, some people have to have special music for that. And so Paul shipped in Hillsong. All right, not Paul, John, excuse me. Being in the spirit has nothing to do with music, has nothing to do with special music leaders. It has nothing to do with special stuff like that. Nothing. At least it didn't for John. Now you can have it your way, but here's what it says. I was in the spirit on the Lord's day and heard behind me a great voice as of a trumpet saying, I am Alpha and Omega, the first and the last. And what thou seest, write in a book and send it unto the seven churches which are in Asia, unto Ephesus and unto Smyrna and unto Pergamos and unto Thyatira and unto Sardis and unto Philadelphia and unto Laodicea. And I turned to see the voice that spake with me. And being turned, I saw seven golden candlesticks. And in the midst of the seven candlesticks, one like unto... The son of man. In other words, it looked like Jesus. But he was clothed with a garment down to the foot. With a girt and girt about the paps with a golden girdle. Apparently he had some kind of breast thing or thing around his midsection. His head and his hairs were white like wool. As white as snow. And his eyes were as flame of fire. And his feet were like unto fine brass as if they burned in a furnace. And his voice as the sound of many waters. And he had in his right hand seven stars. And out of his mouth went a sharp two-edged sword. And his countenance was as the sun shineth in, the, in its strength. And when I saw him, I fell at his feet as dead. And he laid his hand upon me, his right hand upon me, and saying, Fear not, I am the first and the last. I am he that liveth. And was dead. And behold, I am alive forevermore. Now, folks, that can't be physical death, physical life, because he's not physically alive forevermore. He didn't come back to the earth and live physically. He's got to be talking about spiritual death and spiritual life. I am he that liveth and was dead. And behold, I am alive forevermore. Amen. And I have the keys of hell and death. As he is, so are we in this world. As he is, 
so are we in this world. We keep looking back to how he was. John says it looked like him, but wow. Now, you tell me something. What happened to Jesus that changed his appearance from what they recognized when he was here on the earth to this? Now, don't get me wrong. Jesus appears in different ways in different uh, different points in time. Uh, he appears in Revelation chapter 5 as a lamb that was slain and so forth. There are different appearances of Jesus. But we see Jesus in his glorified form. And he says this in connection with writing to the seven churches at Ephesus, or seven churches of Asia. So he's talking church age stuff. Has to be. This can't be after the church age. He can't be talking about things. This can't be his appearance relative to any time beyond the church age, any time beyond the rapture, during the tribulation, during the millennium or anything like that. This has to reference the church age because he says, write this stuff to the seven churches. Right? So this appearance is in the time frame of the church age. Now, what would cause a change in Jesus' appearance from what they knew him here on the earth? (laughs) To this, there's only one thing being raised from spiritual death to spiritual life. Can I ask you a question? And see, I know the problem. I've lived the problem. I know the problem. The problem is how do we accept that we're really righteous? If we were really righteous, we would understand that we'd be able to do some of the things that Jesus did. We get that because Jesus said it was his relationship with the Father. And and, uh, Okay, we know. How do we really get to the place where we accept who we are in Christ? That's the question, right? For everybody. If we could just accept who we are in Christ, then we would start doing the things Jesus did. One step leads to the other. Easy. How do we accept that? Can I ask you a question? The Bible says that Jesus was the firstborn from the spiritually dead. That means when God raised Jesus from the dead, Jesus then walked into heaven after having been spiritually dead and being made righteous by the by the, the 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 works that he accomplished his willingness to spend 3 days and nights in the earth but his righteousness is not his righteousness his righteousness is the righteousness that came from God the father who raised him from the spiritually dead jesus lost his righteousness when he became death when he was made to be sin That means Jesus is sitting on the right hand of God with righteousness that was given him because of his sacrifice. You have been made righteous because of the work that Jesus did, not of your own works, but your choice to make Jesus the Lord of your life. In other words, Jesus' righteousness was imputed or given unto him just as much as your righteousness is given unto you. Jesus earned it through his sacrifice, but it wasn't of himself. Jesus lost the power to raise himself from the dead. When he was here on the earth, he said, no man takes my life. He said, I'll lay it down if I want to, but if I lay it down, I can take it back up again. In other words, he's saying up until the final moment, I choose. But when he's on the cross, one of the last things he said was, Father, I commend my spirit into your hands. What's he saying? He's saying, I've lost the choice now. It's all up to you. See, if there was any part of Jesus that retained the power to come out of hell and death on his own, then he's not really made sin. He had to be made sin completely if righteousness is complete. Not one little speck, not one little toehold that God could have still held on to Jesus. Not one bit. It had to be complete. He had to be, when it says made, I think of being dunked in the tank, but it even goes further than that. He literally became sin. 
Well, God has no part in sin. Not even the smallest, most minute speck of Jesus could have still been God's righteousness or his own righteousness. He had to be totally sin. That means the righteousness that he has that makes him look like this, that glorified him into this condition, that Ephesians chapter 1 is talking about, the power of God which he wrought in Christ when he raised him from the dead. That means that was given to him. That righteousness was given to him because of his work. But it was not his own. In the same way that your righteousness is given unto you and is not your own. I guess my point is this. I'm sure glad Jesus doesn't have a problem with taking his place like we seem to have taken ours. I'm going to read this again. Verse 14, his head and his hairs were like white with wool, as white as snow, and his eyes were as a flame of fire, and his feet like unto fine brass, as if they burned in a furnace. And his voice was as the sound of many waters. And he had in his right hand seven stars, and out of his mouth went a sharp two-edged sword. And his countenance was as the sun shineth in the strength, in his strength. I think John's uh, response is appropriate too. And I felt like I was dead. Folks, that's the one who lives in you now. It's not Jesus. That's the one living in you. When the Bible says greater is he that's in you than he that's in the world. Think of that. And just as much as God raised Jesus from the dead. And you as he quickened. And just as much as God seated Jesus on his right hand and has raised you up to sit together in heavenly places with him. You've got the same place. You've got the same righteousness. We need to take our place. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for your word. Thank you that it's true. Thank you that we have been made righteous because Jesus was made sin. Open our eyes, Father, to help us to see what that really means. Lord Jesus, teach us, show us. That just as your righteousness was given back to you because you earned it, your righteousness is given unto us because we didn't earn it, but because we accepted you. Thank you, Lord, for making us God-men. Thank you for freeing us from every vestige of spiritual death. Sin, sickness, and poverty. Thank you, Father, that in our lives we can reign because we're seated with Christ in heavenly places. Help us, Lord, to take our place and to exercise our authority, not in some work of the flesh, but to accept who we really are. In Jesus' precious name. Amen.